Good morning. As Robbie said, we're uh, kicking off a series on the Bible, and uh, there are a number of questions that we're trying to answer. The Bible, is it God's inspired authoritative word? Is it trustworthy? Uh, How did it get to me? How do I read it? Is it still relevant? Uh, How do I practice or live by it? How do I apply it? Those are some of the questions. And related questions that come up may be things like this. Uh, If it is the Word of God, did God write it? If human beings wrote it, how can I be sure they are God's words? Uh, How do I know there is no error in the particular version that I'm reading? Is the Word of God most accurate in Hebrew or Greek or Arabic? These are good questions. Now, people have spent their lives uh, studying and answering questions and answering these kinds of questions, writing volumes on these things about Scripture, reliability of Scripture, and how to understand it, interpret it, etc. So, uh, it would be too much to assume that in, in six 40-minute segments, we can cover all this. But here's the point. The thrust of our series is that we present some highlights that will encourage us to seriously consider the Word. That's the whole point. So, with that in mind, uh, let's ask God to help us today as we explore, is the Bible the inspired, authoritative Word of God? Father, we thank you for your sovereign over our lives, that there is nothing that happens to us or comes our way without escaping your hands. You let them come through. So we're grateful. We're grateful that we're here today and can worship you, that you have given us breath in our lungs to call upon your name. You've given us your words so that we can read, we can understand, we can respond. To that and we pray that you'd open our minds, clear our thinking, open our hearts that we may be receptive to you, and Lord, our wills that, may be, that they may be moved uh, to obedience to the end that you may be pleased with our lives in every way. That is our desire. So help us, Lord, as we consider things about your word and consider things that are in your word. Help us to understand and to obey. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ten-year-old Micah was in the back seat, and they were driving home from church. So dad asked him, Micah, so what did you learn in kids' church today? So Micah said, Dad, we learned a real cool story. Uh Uh-huh. What was that all about? Well, you know, Moses, uh, God told Moses to go behind the enemy lines and rescue the Israelites. Okay. So what did Moses do? Well, Moses went, went behind the enemy lines, rescued the Israelites, marched them down to the Red Sea. Then he told his engineers to build a bridge. They crossed over. Then he texted for some bombers to come and bomb the bridge. And thus the Israelites were saved. So his dad was kind of puzzled. He said, Micah, you, you, nobody told you that. Dad, if I told you what they really told me about Moses lifting his hand and, and the Red Sea parting, you'd think I'm crazy. <laughs> Is the Bible a collection of stories that are cobbled together to create a book? Or is it God's inspired, authoritative word for us? 
or to put it another way, do we really believe that the Bible must be taken really seriously? If we do, our actions will follow. If we don't, our actions will follow. When we read, for example, in the Bible uh, that marriage ought to represent the relationship between Christ and the church, the husband and the wife, do we really take that seriously? Do we think God really means that we take it seriously? And does he expect us to do it? And if he does, what are we doing about it, right? These kinds of questions always come up. Now, here is what we need to understand, though. We cannot prove that the Bible is God's Word. We cannot prove with mathematical certainty that the Bible is God's Word. Now, if you think about what God has said, uh, He has said, as we read in the Bible, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And those who come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. So that tells us, well, I cannot just reason myself because there is a faith piece involved here uh, in terms of pleasing God and coming to God. Something's got to happen without which I cannot get to God. Now, if you look at Romans 1 verse 20, for example, let me read that for you. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Now that tells me whether I use a telescope to look into the sky or a microscope to look at some cells, it tells me that there are God's fingerprints everywhere. So how do we, how do we reconcile the two? It tells me that I, I can't get some evidence. I think here is how we can recognize, reconcile the two. God has not left us so much evidence in this world that we can come to him by reason alone. However, he has left us enough evidence to assure us that our faith is a most reasonable thing. And there's a difference, right? God has not left us enough reason to say, I can get to God by reason alone. But he has left us enough so that we know our faith is reasonable. So, with that in mind then, we cannot prove that this is God's inspired word, but there is enough evidence to suggest that believing that is not unreasonable, it's not crazy, in fact, it's the most reasonable thing. And so what we're going to do is to look at just a couple of points here that will kind of show us why it is reasonable to believe uh, that this is indeed the inspired, authoritative Word of God. What we're going to do is first look at some things that are kind of unusual and unique about the Bible, and then we'll look at some of the passages in Scripture that speaks uh, to it. First of all, the Bible is unique in its composition. It was written over a span of 1,500 years. The Bible was written over 40 generations. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors from all walks of life. Kings and peasants, philosophers, scholars, shepherds. For example, Moses was a political leader. He was trained in the Egyptian Ivy League universities. Peter was a fisherman. Nehemiah was a cupbearer. Amos was a herdsman. 
Luke was a doctor. Solomon was a king. Matthew was a tax collector. And Paul was a rabbi. All kinds of people, all vocations. The Bible was written in different places. Uh, Moses in the wilderness, Paul inside a prison, Luke while traveling, John in the Isle of Patmos. It was in different places. The Bible was also written at different times. David wrote in times of war. Solomon wrote in times of peace. The Bible was written in three different continents. Africa, Asia, and Europe. The Bible was written in three different languages. Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. What is fascinating, obviously, is that in spite of the span of time, authors, generations, languages, etc., there is a sense of harmony and consistency over so many controversial subjects. The major theme is creation, fall, and redemption. And they all speak in a very consistent, coherent manner, even though they are distributed over time and cultures. As one writer put it, the paradise lost of Genesis becomes the paradise gained of Revelation. Whereas the tree of life is closed in Genesis, it is opened forevermore in Revelation. Now think with me about these controversial topics. Now two people living together as one under one roof at the same time and same location find it difficult to agree on one thing. If you think I'm not saying, I'm, just check with any married person. They'll, they'll attest to this, right? How can so many people living in different circumstances, locations, etc., speak with such harmony on so many different issues? The Bible is unique. The Bible is also unique in circulation and translation. There's probably been no other book that has been circulated so much and been translated so much into all kinds of languages. Even today, translation work goes on in languages that don't have the word. Now, does that prove that it's God's word? No, the Bible is unique. There's something unusual and unique about it. The Bible is unique in its survival through time, through persecution. Diocletian, the emperor in Rome, issued in AD 303, he issued an edict that all scriptures be burned and all churches be razed to the ground. Within 25 years, you had an edict from the next emperor, Constantine, who said 50 copies of the scriptures shall be produced with government expense. The Bible has found its way into all kinds of places um, in our world. Uh, underground churches flourish because the Word of God has reached those locations. The Bible is unique. The Bible is also unique in terms of the number of manuscripts. There are about 5,000 manuscripts, so the scholars say. 5,000 manuscripts, early manuscripts of the New Testament that are available. The second best of any book in antiquity will be Homer's Iliad with about 640 or so. There is large numbers in terms of evidence. Manuscripts written very close to the time of the original writing that are available for evaluation. The Bible is unique. The Bible is also unique in terms of fulfilled prophecies. Think about this. If something is written over 1,500 years 
And if there are prophets prophesying, now you have an opportunity to go verify whether those prophecies are fulfilled. Take, for example, Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12. Here the prophecy is about the, the, the people of Israel being exiled to Babylon for 70 years. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. History tells us in 609 BC, Babylon took over the Assyrian Empire, and Israel was under them. And then in 539 BC, with Cyrus coming on board, the leader of Persians and Medes, he conquered Babylon and brought an end to that empire, and the Jews were free. 70 years in, cap in captivity, in exile, and then they were free. The prophecies uh, came true. We have over 300 prophecies of the Messiah, Jesus himself in the Old Testament. Many of them have come true, except the one of his second coming. For example, let's take the prophecy of his virgin birth. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. And then if you go into Matthew's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 22, Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Prophecy fulfilled. His birthplace in Bethlehem, for example, was prophesied by Micah many hundred years ago. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. And we know Jesus was born in the city of Bethlehem. The rejection, Jesus' rejection by the Jews, his suffering and death, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven, all prophesied. And we've seen the fulfillment of it all. Does this all prove that the Bible is God's word? It doesn't. But it does say the Bible is unique. And it does then invite us to seriously consider what the Bible has to say. Well, let's look at a few things about, uh, as to what the Bible has to say. 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17. Paul writes to young Timothy. He says... All scripture is inspired by God, inspired there meaning literally God-breathed. All scripture is God-breathed or inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. God-breathed, that's where we get this word inspiration of scripture. Scripture is inspired and it is useful uh, for teaching, for pointing out uh, shortcomings or issues, for showing the right way, for leading in the right path. Why? So that the man of God may be adequate or complete already at the present time, always ready, equipped for every good work. 
That's what the inspired scriptures are all about. The inspired God-breathed scriptures come with enormous power. So now you have to ask the question, if they were written by human authors, how do these scriptures have so much power? Well, turn with me to 1 Peter 1.21. I'll read 1 Peter 1.20 and 21. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Interesting. So the scriptures have this dual authorship. God is the ultimate author, but the Holy Spirit moves these authors along, guarding them and guiding them to bring us the truth that we have recorded for us today. This is a God-orchestrated process. God working through human beings to bring forth his word for us today. So what is inspiration? I mean, how can we define that? We might say inspiration is a process by which God worked through human beings, human writers, without destroying their individual personalities and styles so that his truth would be recorded without error. God working through individuals without disrupting their lives in some sense and then producing the truth without error. That is the inspiration of scripture that we hold on to. That's what we believe. Just a couple of other interesting observations. Second uh, Peter 3.16, for example, Peter refers to Paul's writings as Scripture. He says, um, um, verse 14, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. So if you find Paul to understand, don't feel bad. Peter found him hard to understand. Which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of the scriptures, to their own destruction. Right? So Peter classifies all of Paul's writing as part of the rest of the scriptures. Uh, in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul, Paul quotes both Deuteronomy and Luke, all in one verse. Uh, the preceding verse, verse 17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And now catch this, verse 18. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, straight out of Deuteronomy. The laborer is worthy of his wages, straight out of Luke. So you have this cross-reference going on, between the New Testament and the Old Testament, you have Paul referring to the Old Testament scriptures as well. So, with all these references, you find that they're all kind of coming together and they are the inspired word of God, so the Bible tells us. So far, so good. Now, what did Jesus think of all these scriptures? Now, we want to know that because we're followers of Jesus. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4. 
Now here we see the temptation of Jesus. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was, led, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Hey, you made bread in the desert, you know, you provided manna, wonder bread for all these people. But yeah, you can turn these stones into bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Straight out of Deuteronomy. Second temptation, Jesus addresses again. Verse 7, Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Go down to verse 10, third temptation. Be, uh, Jesus replies, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, think about this. If the living word needed the written word to deal with the devil, how much more would we, who have never written any word, need the written word? So the written word is absolutely inspired, authoritative, and comes to us, and we are free to use it, apply it, and live lives by it. To Jesus, those scriptures, the writings, when he's talking about the Old Testament, they were really authoritative. Authoritative enough to go after Satan when he was tempted. Then in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, you see Jesus saying that he did not, do not think, Jesus says to the Pharisees, verse 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill for truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke, think of the Hebrew alphabet, the little, little signs there, shall pass from the law until all is, is, is accomplished. So Jesus says the entirety of the law, big and small, I mean, it's, everything will be accomplished. This is sacred. These are scriptures. These are inspired. These are God-breathed. And then we find a couple of other passages where Jesus refers to, for example, Genesis. In Matthew 19, 4, when Jesus is addressing the issue of divorce, he says, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He is quoting straight out of Genesis. So he regarded Genesis as authoritative scripture. Now in Matthew chapter 12 verse 40, we find Jesus refers to Jonah. Thought Jonah was a little kid story just for fun? Well, Jesus refers to it. Let's look at this. Verse 38 through 40, Matthew chapter 12. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus considered Jonah, the book of Jonah, as authoritative scripture, 
and what happened as something that really happened. Jesus refers to the flood in Noah's day. We find that in Matthew chapter 24. But then you come to this very interesting passage, Matthew chapter 24, verses 34 through 35. Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill. This is Matthew chapter 24, verse 34 and 35. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Now, what is that about Abel and Zechariah? Well, if you go into Second Chronicles, you read about Zechariah. He called the people of God to faithfulness, and they stoned him. So he was a martyr calling for faith. Abel did what was pleasing in his sight, offered something of faith, and he was murdered. He was murdered for his faith. Now, what is significant about Abel and Zechariah? Here's the deal. Abel was the first in Genesis to be martyred. Now, if you take the Hebrew scriptures, the first book is Genesis, and the last book is Second Chronicles. So Jesus is making a reference to Abel in Genesis, to Zechariah in Second Chronicles, thus taking the entire canon of scriptures together and say, testifying, saying, this is authoritative. This word is inspired and authoritative. He refers from Genesis, the first martyr, to the last Zechariah in Second Chronicles, because that's the way Second Chronicles, uh, that's the way the books were ordered in the Hebrew uh, scriptures. So, because the scriptures are inspired by God or God breathed, we find that the messages of all of the 66 books kind of hang together. They cohere, there is a sense of consistency, there is a harmony in the overall message because it comes from the same mind the ultimate mind, the ultimate author, God himself, though it's through human beings. Because the scriptures are inspired by God <clears throat> or God breathed, they can be composed over long periods of time in various locations, cultures, languages, and times, and it can still maintain unity and harmony. Because the scriptures are inspired by God or God breathed, they are authoritative, and therefore they call for a response from us. So now, how do we respond to God's inspired word? Let us just take, for example, Genesis chapter 22, a very familiar passage dealing with Abraham sacrificing Isaac. <clears throat> how do we respond to God's inspired word and just an example here. Genesis 22, verse 1. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Now it came about after these things. After what things? Well, let's look at where Abraham has been. <clears throat> Excuse me. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham to leave his people and his homeland and go to Canaan. So he leaves. 
before long you find him in Egypt because there's a famine in the land. What's going on here? Does, can God not provide? Uh, is it uh, Abraham's lack of trust that he had to decamp and go over to Egypt to get some food? We don't know. And then in Egypt you find him kind of passing his wife off as his sister. He's afraid that Pharaoh will take his wife and therefore he may not be able to have descendants. So he's kind of orchestrated his plan and said, she's my sister, so that Pharaoh wouldn't harm him. Now we also have to wonder, he took Lot with him. Now, I thought God had asked him to leave all his relatives and go, but he carried Lot with him, his nephew. Why? Maybe he thought, well, I'm pretty old. Maybe my nephew will substitute uh, would be a good substitute if I can't have children. Maybe, we don't know, but possibly. And then we find with Abimelech, again he passes his wife off as his sister. Still doesn't get it. It doesn't look like he believes that God can do what he promised he will do. That is, he will have descendants. So now Lot is gone. Maybe the descendant God promised will come from me, Abraham thought. But then Sarah has been on Medicare for quite a few years. <laughs> well, maybe we can try Hagar. That might work. Well, he does it, and you know the rest of the story on that. So Abraham is kind of stumbling along, doesn't seem to take God very seriously. He's just moving on with all kinds of orchestrations of his plans and processes. Finally, Isaac is born in chapter 21. And the first two verses are beautiful. God makes it very clear there that he has kept his end of the bargain. Watch this. Then the Lord took note of Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. So Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the appointed time of which God had spoken to him. Three times in two verses, God rebukes him, Abraham. Hey, Abraham, you've been trying all these things. Look, I have kept my end of the bargain. I have delivered just as I have promised. Now, Abraham, I have been faithful. Will you? So now we have the test. Chapter 22, second part of the first verse, that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, and he said, here I am. Will he pass or fail? Let's find out. Now, he's taking uh, Isaac and a few guys up the, up the mountain. Think about the struggle he probably had, right? I'm sure he had an emotional struggle. This was the son he was waiting for for such a long time. The son he loved, the only one. It had to have been difficult for a father to take a son and say he's going to sacrifice I am sure he would have had some relational struggles. What would mama say if he came home without his son and said, I sacrificed him up the mountain? This won't go well. Uh, theologically, he probably struggled. God promised. He delivered. Now he's asking him back, what happens to the multitude that's going to come uh, through my uh, seed? Well, he is kind of boxed in. There's nothing he can do. He's pinned down and he sees no escape. What does Abraham do? After all these other experiences and seeing God faithful, watch what he does. He does what God has asked him to do, 
regardless of his circumstances. When he was pushed against the wall, he did what God asked him to do, regardless of his struggles and circumstances. So now notice uh, in chapter uh, in chapter 22, verse 11. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am, verse 12. And he said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. We want to know what the fear of God is? Well, it's the beginning of wisdom, we know. What is the fear of God? The authoritative word of God tells us that you withhold nothing, even that which you love so much, you will withhold nothing from God. Abraham demonstrated to us what the real fear of God was all about. His only son, the one he loved, was withheld. I mean, he was not willing to withhold Isaac from God. It's also interesting that we find in verse 13, Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for burnt offering in the place of his son. It was not like the ram was not there, but when Abraham obeyed and did what God called him to do, his eyes were opened to God's provision for sacrifice. The ram that was caught in the thicket was seen. He was able to go forward. So God's provision in his dilemma, he was able to experience and enjoy them when he chose to obey God regardless of his circumstances. And all his experiences, prior experiences, built him up. And when he came to the ultimate test, he was found to be faithful. So we see the li- through the life of Abraham what it means to fear God. It is holding nothing back from God. Regardless of what we may love and feel, we hold nothing back when it comes to obeying God. Full-on obedience is really an expression of the fear of God. So the inspired, authoritative word calls us to fear God. Now we have to ask ourselves this question. Is there anything that stands in the way of our obeying God today? That which you know you need to obey. Is there anything that stands in the way? Do you really fear God enough to take Him seriously? Because God is always faithful and delivers as He's promised. So all Scripture is God-breathed. It is authoritative. Will we submit to its demands? When we submit to the demands of Scripture, what we are doing is not just submitting to the Word, but we are submitting to the God of the Word. Father, we thank you, for you are so gracious. You're merciful, you're loving. Your mercies never come to an end, so we just rejoice in that. And thank you for what you revealed to us. May we be those who are found willing to obey. 
And may your Holy Spirit empower us, energize us, and move us to do just that. To that, and we ask for a blessing in Jesus, our Lord's name.